0: Um, my name is Michael Bidwell, and I'm a senior associate in the Environment Planning and Communities team here at Herbert Smith Free Hills. And I am absolutely honoured um, to be holding this virtual panel across our global network, um, a panel on the regional evolution of ESG, reflections from Australia, South Africa and the United Kingdom. Um, before I get started, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands upon which Uh, well, the lands upon which everyone's joining from all over the world (laughs) and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging on your lands. Um, So I'll hand over to the panelists to introduce themselves. So Huneza, if you want to go first.
1: Thanks,
2: Michael. I'm Huneza. I'm a partner in the Johannesburg office. My main focus areas are corporate M&A and also equity capital markets. I have been practising for about 21 years or so, and about a year and a half or so ago have joined Herbert Smith in Johannesburg.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Yoneza. And over to you, Mel.
1: Hi, I'm Mel Debenham. Um, I'm here in Perth on Wajak Noongar Country. I'm an environment planning, native title, cultural heritage, land access and approvals um, type lawyer um, and very focused on ESG and, and the impact of emerging ESG issues on traditional practice areas.
0: Brilliant, thanks Mel, and over to you Silke.
3: Hello, good morning or good afternoon depending on your time zone. I'm Silke Goldberg, I'm the global head of ESG for HSF by way of background, I'm an energy lawyer. The vast majority of my practice is focused on the energy transition, um, renewable energy. Our remainder of the practice is focused on energy infrastructure in order to make the energy transition happen.
0: Brilliant! Thanks so much, Silke, for joining us. So, as you can see, we have um, an incredible lineup of panelists. So. I won't waste any further time, and I'll just get straight into it. So, Mel, I might start with you, because I think Australia is kind of in the middle. (laughs) So we might start with the middle here. Um, But I guess Australia has ordinarily followed the path of democracy um, with matters relevant to ESG being documented in our regulatory um, framework as and when they become of interest. Um, But recent years have seen more regular, more severe weather events Um, together with increased awareness of harm to cultural heritage um, that has prompted more action. So I just was curious on your thoughts on how you see the Australian market dealing with that intersection between regulation and action um, relevant to ESG. That's
1: a really good question. And I think um, from an Australian perspective, we've actually got a history of pretty strong regulation and a multiplicity of regulation across ESG type areas. Um, in part that's a it's a product of um, the federal system of law we have and you know Commonwealth and state-based laws. From an environmental perspective, um it's hard it's easy, I think, to forget the highly protective nature of the fundamental regimes we've got in place. And you know, I think about our local Environmental Protection Act here in Western Australia, which embeds concepts of the precautionary principle and intergenerational equity and things like that. That's been um, statute here since the 80s. So um, we do have a lot to be proud of in terms of the strength of our regulatory regime. But um, when I think about where we're at today and sort of the gaps that exist, and there certainly are some, um, it, it probably reflects... Um, a lack of leadership, I guess. Um, and some of the emerging ESG issues, climate in particular, being those political hot potatoes. Um, we talk about the climate wars um, and the end of the climate wars as a result of a change in federal government here in Australia. Um, but you know, when you have issues like that politicised, there's a lot of debate and very little action from a regulatory perspective. It's also circumstances where we often see businesses take the lead, um, and their drivers obviously are a bit different to government. Um, and when you see that shift in community sentiment, um, stakeholder and shareholder expectations also change. So um, perhaps there's greater impetus for businesses to you know, shore up their social licence position by doing more, irrespective of what that regulatory backdrop looks like. And... Um, you end up with two speeds, I guess, um, of regulation which says you must do certain things and then leading practice in practice um, and, you know, they they kind of run against each other from time to time. Um, I don't think we ever really see legislation catch up unless you have those type of, you know, those watershed moments. You were talking about severe weather events and um I think about the impact to UCAN Gorge, so the destruction of a very old and important site, which was really a call for action for greater protections and regulatory reform in terms of Aboriginal heritage. Um, So, yeah, I think that's where we're at in in Australia. Um, Good foundations, still some gaps um, and two speeds in terms of what business is doing and where regulation is at.
0: Yep, completely agree. Thanks so much, Mel. Um, Huneza, from the um, brief <laughs> background I have on um, South Africa, it seems you started with a similar um, strong legislative um, framework, um, but it seems that over in South Africa, there hasn't been um, much shift or much change in the last decade or two from there. And it, some say well are you lagging um behind in particular with climate change and so I was curious if you thought that was a fair comment um and ha- how do you see the situation changing and will that happen in the near future
2: thanks michael um to be honest i don't believe that that is a fair comment um just in 2016 The United Nations Environmental Programme noted that the financial sector in South Africa has been a leader and innovator in integrating environmental, social and governance issues into its practices. The primary reason for such a strong positive statement is regulation, regulation that's continued to be adopted or amended um, as required to keep up with changing trends. We take, for example, the revised um, Regulation 28 of the Pension Funds Act that regulates how retirement funds should invest their assets to ensure that their long-term commitments to members are met. It provides guidance to trustees on how to formulate appropriate investment strategies to provide suitable retirement benefits to members, in addition to determining those asset limits. So, Regulation 28 explicitly provides that prudent investing should Um, give appropriate consideration to any factor which materially will affect sustainable long-term performance of a fund's assets, including all of your ESG um, governance, um, social and environmental factors. Interestingly, um, well, it was interesting for me, in fact, was Regulation 28 actually caught the attention of delegates um, about two years or so back in in New York at the Impact Investing Lawyers Working Group, where comparison was actually done between Regulation 28 in South Africa and the U.S. pension funds and how they're actually lagging compared to South Africa. Again, just in light with um, whatever changing trends there are, the Financial Sector Conduct Authority has issued further guidelines on how to integrate those ESG concepts into retirement funds on the back of Regulation 28. The retirement fund space is definitely ahead in relation to ESG-related legislation. However, it is up to those retirement funds themselves that are currently among the significant holders of equities in South Africa, where they invest in excess of but I think it's 2.3 trillion rand annually on behalf of pensioners to take to heart the impact that their investments um, can make to society and to these ESG factors, and to use the legislative provisions to make that impact. So even though Regulation 28 is directed at pension funds, it's influenced across the financial sector. Um, mm. In you know with uh, climate risk forum disclosure group documents being published guiding regulators and other industry players in the financial sector in relation to the minimum expectations of climate-related risks and opportunities. So I'm of the view that South Africa has maintained a proud tradition of corporate governance since the publication of King um, in 1994. Um, Policymakers continue to evaluate and adopt policies that are in tune with the changing trends, um, and even though, you know, the last King report was published in 2016, this publication's actually been further supplemented this year with specific climate change requirements um, and reporting that needs to be done um, by these entities. Now, the problem that we have with King is, is that it's not law. Entities are um, encouraged to apply and explain how the principles of King are actually adopted. However, we are seeing a movement where these principles are actually becoming um, entrenched in law. For example, um, our stock exchange, the JSE, has issued um, um, public guidelines, which will become mandatory on those listed entities to actually comply with climate change um, and reporting. Just a point where I do think that South Africa may be lagging behind the UK and Australia has been in relation to the um, say and pay recommendations in relation to executive directors. However, again, keeping in line with global trends, proposed amendments have been made to our Companies Act where shareholders are going to have to determine um, whether the remuneration policy Uh, of executive directors is satisfactory or not. So whilst it's not being put to a binding vote, shareholders are going to have more visibility in relation to executive pay. Just interestingly, you know, at a number of AGMs over the last two or three years, um, remuneration has actually been voted down at a number of these AGMs. So you can definitely see the shareholder activism coming through and legislation keeping in touch and abreast with those changing trends um, as well. So I could continue to sing the praises of how it is that um, South Africa has continued to um, keep up to date with changes in legislations. But the reality is that the strength of the black letter of the law is really, you know, upon each one of us in adopting those policies and being held accountable for the implementation thereof. Unfortunately, the political landscape in South Africa, you know, is fraught with corruption, et cetera. Also, our heavy reliance on coal does not necessarily allow us to fully adopt these policies um, and legislation that is currently in place.
0: That's really interesting, NASA. And I think um, particularly to see um, where the, the financial influence is where um, a lot of these policies and changes are coming from. So, thank you for singing the praises for South Africa. I think you're doing very well. Um, Silke, so, okay, I will hand over to you now, because um, and this, <laughs> who knows has proven me wrong already, but the brief comments that I saw um, in the UK is that they're the leading voice, um, especially when it comes to climate change action and ESG and leading COP26. Um, in light of the recent changes um, to administration of government over there do you think the uk um, will continue to play a leading role and feel free to touch i guess more broadly in europe do you think um you'll continue to play that leading role or um are we going to see some shift in the dynamics
3: Mm -hmm. thank you michael that's a really good question and i think i would probably distinguish long-term trends from short-term Blips or short term debate, and this is both true for the UK as well as the European Union. So, starting with the UK, we actually have in law a um, net zero by 2050 target. So, the Climate Change Act commits the UK government to reduce greenhouse gases by 100% compared to 1990 standards, and so therefore, it is a very fundamental commitment to the E part of ESG. ESG, of course, is much broader and and, and, uh, has other elements. But if we concentrate on the the climate change elements here, then that is a a legal commitment. We also have seen, and uh, uh, Michael, you alluded to this in relation to um, net zero. We have seen a number of policies by the UK government. So we have the, um, as of sort of in preparation of COP26, but also independently from that, we have the 10 point plan for net zero which had uh, plans for more investment in renewable and low carbon sources, which for UK purposes is chiefly offshore wind, but also hydrogen and nuclear, um, which committed funding to research and development goals. And also, which is crucial for the UK because the UK, and in particular London, is a heavily service-driven economy to a commitment to advancing green finance in the city of London. So sort of really sort of pushing... Um, that element of uh, the financial services industry. So we also have a, a UK decarbonisation strategy, which was published by BEIS, that's our Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy here, um, as well as the, the North Sea Transition Deal, which was published last year and agreed last year. And we believe um, that well, this type of deal. The North Sea Transition Deal is probably one of the first amongst the G7, 8 or G20, whichever way you would like to count this. And that actually commits serious money to certain types of investments. So first of all, um, there is <clears throat> up to three billion to replace fossil based um, fuel for oil and gas platforms uh, to replace that with renewable energy. And we see a lot of interest in industry, sort of government and industry being aligned on that point. Um Also three billion to invest in carbon capture and storage and up to ten billion to invest in hydrogen. so at that level, there is a lot of not only legal commitment but also money behind those commitments. Now the UK and Europe are undergoing currently a little bit of um I don't want to sort of sound flippant but let's call it severe disturbances in the energy market, chiefly as a result of the war in Ukraine. Uh, but also as then um, the way that uh, UK and European governments have reacted to that for all for all good policy reasons. So um, at the moment, the, there are constraints on the gas market, because obviously Russia as a major um, provider of gas is no longer in the picture or sort of uh, very, very minimally in the picture in Europe. At the same time, and this is unrelated to the war in Ukraine, um We had a drought in lots of parts of uh, Norway, in other parts of uh, jurisdictions like Austria last year already, not only this year, which have led to a lesser output in our European hydro sources. So therefore, we have seen a rise in power prices, for instance, in, in Norway, but also in Austria, even before the war in Ukraine started to hit gas prices and then have a trickle-down effect on electricity prices for those power stations that are gas-based. So we're now seeing a phase where governments need to address this energy crisis urgently. And in this short-term crisis, you will see governments or even political, let's say, parties who might not ordinarily be seen to advocate for coal-fired power station or indeed nuclear to reconsider this. So we've seen this in Germany, where the Green Minister for Environment and uh, Economic Affairs it needed to consider, to maintain, to, to re-switch on a coal-fired power station, which I think even some of the environmental charities admitted was a necessity in the circumstances, mm-hmm. which was remarkable. In Germany, you now have a debate around, um, should nuclear power stations, which are, all but one are being decommissioned at the moment, and the last one is due to go off the grid normally next year, should those be extended. So, And that comes from the Green Party, which in Germany is very, very vocally or has always been very vocally anti-nuclear. In the UK, by contrast, you see debates uh, reopening the possibility of onshore fracking, um, also uh, new licensing rounds. So you're seeing almost short-term actionism from all sorts of governments across the political spectrum. It's very hard to attach a uh, political color or an ideology to that. It is managing the crisis. But if you step back, and if you listen from a European perspective to the state of the European Union, which Ursula von der Leyen delivered yesterday um, to the European Parliament, There is no wavering as such in terms of the mid and long term commitment to net zero to the energy transition. And at European Union level, that is expressed in um, legislative packages such as the Fit for 55 package um, in in, uh, the um, increasing of renewable energy targets in the uh, fine-tuning of the EU ETS, the European Union Emission Trading Scheme. So there's a raft of policy instruments, including, for instance, the hydrogen um, 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 regulation, which for the first time will actually set out how a an hydrogen hydrogen market could look at European level. So all of these things continue. I think we're looking at a reasonably short-term blip in and in a slightly different centre of attention at the moment in European energy policy. I've talked a lot, um I think Michael, back to you. No. Um,
0: <laughs> no, that was um fantastic and really interesting, like you said, if I have blips or um certain crises can influence how governments and political parties move on things. Um which I think is a nice segue because Mel, we're also dealing with the change of government over here in Australia. Um, and there's been some pretty big commitments um, made to update the federal environmental legislation and introduce um, standalone cultural heritage legislation, along with a raft of other commitments, um, and appreciate it's a crystal ball at the moment. But what do you think um, our clients and businesses should be looking out for in this changing landscape?
1: Absolutely. Um... It is a changing landscape for regulation in Australia, um, and the ambition that has been expressed by the Albanese government um, will be a real driver for more regulation than what we've seen in previous years. Um, We had the climate bill pass recently, um, so it's not quite as ambitious as as what Silke described in the UK. it essentially embeds in statute the targets that we have for emissions reduction in Australia. Um, but, uh, you know, reflecting on um, Hanna's considerations around Regulation 28 and how the fact of Regulation 28 has actually influenced other sectors and, and other regimes, I do think that the, that the Climate Act will have a similar type of impact. The fact of that legislation being in existence and that very positive Um, and firm statement around emissions reduction being enshrined in legislation will have a ripple effect for other regulators and other regimes. From an environmental perspective, we're certainly going to see an amendment to our Commonwealth legislation. um, Crystal ball gazing, yes. I think we might see a climate trigger and we'll probably see a lot more around Aboriginal cultural heritage as well as engagement consultation with First Nations people, more broad than just that concept of heritage. Um, And we'll probably see quite a bit from state level too, I suspect, both in terms of harmonising existing um, legislation with what we'll see from the Commonwealth, but also continuing to fill the gaps as, as we've seen the states and territories do. I think uh, and my last observation around um, regulation is probably um, scope three emissions. So we're certainly seeing regulators more actively step into that space, um, not taking um, the you know the argument that my scope three someone else is someone else's scope one and it's regulated there. Um, that's that's not enough anymore. So there are certainly examples from both the state and commonwealth level where um, there is active regulation and and a desire to see. Companies do what they can to influence what's happening beyond the remit of their activities. But outside of regulation, um, another, you know, there's a whole bunch of ESG emerging issues. um, And one that I thought might be um, interesting to call out is um, some of the intersections that we are seeing of issues and stakeholders. Um, And for me, uh, at the moment, um, the intersection that um, is is really coming into sharp focus is First Nations and environmental activists. So obviously um, there is a a long history of um, First Nations or or traditional people um, having environmental concerns and and partnering with environmental NGOs um, in raising opposition to project development or to um, sort of advocate for for changes to the law. Um, But, What I'm seeing in terms of intersection is some of the concerns around land interests or custom or culture being intertwined with a broader concern around climate, for example, um, what you're doing from an emissions perspective, and and that will play out in in terms of biodiversity and water and shared assets as well. Um, So something I think that we should all have on our horizon is sort of this intersection of issues and. Um, how they can manifest in different ways outside of regulation but also how when we're seeing these things happen so um, there was recently an announcement by uh, the EDO around a a particular complaint that was going to be made um, where there was a um, ENGO plus a um, a First Nations party Um, that can also influence what the regulators do so they will be trying to mitigate risk associated with their processes and You know, when when they are seeing these things on the horizon, um, I think the natural expectation is they want to see companies do more in terms of engagement, consultation, and actively considering those intersecting issues in a different way within the processes that they administer. Um, So it's not just what the Parliament Um, is doing and creating, but it's also the influence that we're seeing more broadly um, have to bear on how those legislative processes are actually administered in practice.
0: Yep, no, definitely. Um,
2: If I may, Michael, that's quite interesting, in fact, you know, just with the concept that you're going through with First Nations and what South Mm -hmm. Africa has gone through with its transition into democracy and black economic empowerment, et cetera, and how it is that, you know, we've had to redress the past um, legacy issues, et cetera, and how local communities are coming in and having to be consulted in the mining area, in renewable energy, et cetera. So it is very much, you know, what we're seeing happening in Australia. South Africa has been going through that and continues to go through the active participation of local communities as well.
1: That's a good point you raised that um, we're all very connected now globally. And so you will see people in South Africa looking at um, First Nations, Um, approaches in Australia and in the same way that First Nations people in Australia will be looking to New Zealand or Canada or elsewhere um, in shaping, you know, their response to project development or their expectations.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. Um, And yeah, I think um, some, yeah, just the intersection, um, that we've seen play out in different jurisdictions, as you said, Mel, it's really interesting to see how, because we're now so visible <laughs> to each other um, and so public now with um, things happening, that it's it's really interesting to see what we can learn from each other and what we can take forward. Um, I, I because I've been so um intrigued by this conversation i'm not sure if you mentioned um the Johannesburg uh, stock exchange publishing the sustainability and climate disclosure disclosure guidance and you talked before about how there's um i guess those financial um regulations happening in the background as well but i was curious if you could take us through those um guidance that guidance and let us know if you think um the south african Legal regime will become mandatory disclosure, or if we'll kind of keep operating in this um just having the frameworks to prompt businesses to act,
1: yeah. Um,
2: Yeah, Michael. So, yes, it was definitely part of my break sheet, though. um, I've got a whole list of other ones that I could include, (laughs) but uh, we can take that offline. (laughs) So, yes, um, you know, following an extensive public consultation period, the JSE, you know, published two sets of guidance documents earlier this year in June, um, which seeks to, um, you know, have the support of issuers on their journey towards better disclosure on sustainability and climate-related matters. So, it really isn't you know something that's quite new. It really is quite akin to the EFRS requirements on exposure for drafts and sustainability-related uh, financial information, what they call EFRS S1, and climate-related disclosures, EFRS um, 2. The JSU's disclosure guidance also focuses on sustainability disclosure and climate um, matters. <clears throat> it's not intended to replace any pre-existing global initiatives, um, and it just rather adds on to it. And the purpose really is to help those companies listed on the JSE to navigate the landscape of reporting standards without being onerous and to provide explicitly for the South African context. Because I think as we've picked up, you know, we do have a history of addressing a number of other issues. We are a very um, minerals-based uh, economy as well, where we are very reliant on our natural resources. So it is taking into account all of those factors as well. So it does consider the many ESG metrics currently available and highlights those metrics that are generally well-established, universal um, industry agnostic, and which are suitable to our context. So the disclosure guidance um, complements the existing reporting regime. And um, whilst the JSC has implicitly held requirements for sustainability disclosure through its links to King, because as I mentioned, King is um, a voluntary code and the JSC has made it legally binding on the companies listed on the exchange by way of incorporating it into its listings requirements, this is a further step as to how Um, those reporting obligations are entrenched and we're going to see companies having to comply more and more with um, what is a guidance framework in um, relation to other players within the industry that are not listed. Um, In fact, the guidance can be used by institutional investors and different entities. It doesn't necessarily, you know, is limited only to those listed entities. So we do hope that um, this goes a long way in bridging the gap between your voluntary compliance with now obliging entities to be more accountable and to actually comply with um, these, uh, you know, policy frameworks that we've had in existence for a long time.
3: Yeah, no, that's...
0: Really great. I think, Huneza, you've definitely um, proven that that uh, comment I saw before about South Africa was definitely wrong. So thanks so much for sharing um, the updates that are happening over in South Africa. Um, Silke, so, okay, I think um, you touched on developments that are happening um, over in the EU and UK before. And you also sit as our global head of the ESG. And after listening to some of the comments um, that have been made by Mel and Huneza, I was just curious if you had... Um, From your perspective, what, um, I guess, are the key developments in the ESG space and what do clients um, and businesses need to be aware of um, or start preparing for? And I guess any lessons learned along your way in the global head position?
3: Sure. Thank you, Michael. I think I might start with a um, statement that might be obvious, but actually it is born true in so many of the comments that Nell and Huneza just made as well. ESG is contagious. So if you see a development in South Africa, in New York, in uh, the Philippines, in uh, Australia or the European Union, regulators talk to each other. Michael, you mentioned how we also visible and transparent social media and generally sort of the, the connectivity in this area is so much greater than probably at any point in prior history um, that policy trends will be picked up. They will be flavoured differently locally. So the Johannesburg uh, stock exchange rules might phrase it differently. and might have a slightly different flavour compared to the SEC rules in relation to climate disclosure, which also have come into force. And I'm sure that it will then regional variety. But the global trend is there. sort of in terms of the global trends that everybody needs to be aware of is first of all more transparency sort of the trend to disclosure is probably the biggest global trend in this area and with that trend to disclosure comes and either in soft law or in hard law depending on the jurisdiction but in square brackets more and more hard law in this area is coming is also perhaps the human desire to present one's company, to present one's project in as good a light as possible. And then we can see globally the risk of greenwashing rising. So um, things like come to us and you save the world by um, CO2 emissions that that you save through our products or sort of hyperbolic statements. I think we've moved away from that largely and companies have gotten so much more sophisticated. But as often, the devil is in the detail. So companies should watch out really carefully in annual reporting, in their sustainability or climate report, or indeed in their stock exchange reports. What is it that they're saying? Because we have seen historically, specifically in relation to climate change and CO2 footprinting, that there were cases where it wasn't so much is company X contributing to climate change in any shape or form, but has company X made accurate disclosure? in relation to their carbon footprint. And that ultimately, that was in in particular in the New York Exxon, uh, the ExxonMobil case, um, that was ultimately the key question. It wasn't about climate change per se, it was about statements in relation to carbon footprinting and misrepresentation in that context. So that's probably both the biggest trend and the biggest regulatory danger, as it were. Um, I think what a general watching brief um, is really important for companies because this area of law, perhaps as none other, is evolving so fast and interconnectedly at a global mm. level that it's really important that companies do commit the resource and are sure that they, that they are being kept up to date. If I can plug our various ESG updates at that point, so that if we do provide that service and we, we see there's a real interest from companies um, because it is quite hard to, to do, stay actually on top of that. That's one global trend. Actually, two. Disclosure, greenwashing risk. The third global trend is something that both Huneza and Melanie have talked about as well. That is the interconnectedness or intersectionality of the various ESG strands. In our chat this morning, we have concentrated on climate aspects. But actually, in terms of uh, the wider ESG spectrum, um, a lot more disclosure and a lot more obligations are also coming. So, for instance, the, uh, the new uh, sustainability uh, disclosure directive, the um, um, uh, that is coming, the corporate sustainability, sorry, the corporate sustainability reporting directive of the European Union is probably the biggest piece of regional legislation in this area. Which means that um, companies need to disclose matters pertaining to. Uh, carbon footprint to environmental rights, social rights, human rights, as well as governance factors. And that intersectionality is becoming mainstream, um, in part by virtue of this directive, but uh, also through soft law. And um, Michael, you you asked about specific legal trends or legal developments. This directive is really important, but not because it impacts not only companies in the European Union, but it also impacts companies who are acting outside, they are incorporated outside the European Union, but are trading in the European Union. So European Union has generally um, a trend to export its standards. Um, So there is an extraterritorial effect. It doesn't matter whether you're a European company, you can be a South African company, a a, a South Korean company. It would not ordinarily affect you by virtue of being incorporated, but by virtue of doing business in the EU by offering a product in the European Union, you will be affected by this directive. The same is true of some other European Union uh, legislation. So, for instance, you may have heard about the EU taxonomy, which basically tries to define what counts as green and sustainable and what doesn't in terms of uh, products, in terms of fuels and energy and, and other elements. Um, and to the extent that a company originating, let's say, in Australia. Doesn't ordinarily apply by virtue of territoriality. However, as soon as the Australian company goes and wants to offer, let's say, green bonds and um, specific legal, financial instruments that are captured by the taxonomy, that Australian company is captured and subject to the taxonomy rules. So, watch out. I suppose is the other the other point, not only for intersectionality but also for extraterritoriality of rules mm-hmm. that apply. So that is probably, by way of summary, what I would say, on global trends with some European flavour.
1: OK, the, the point um, you raised about, and we very much have focused this discussion on climate, um, but that's something I think, you know, people sometimes see ESG as climate and it absolutely isn't. And there is a lot yeah. of focus on climate action, um, climate yes. disclosures. Um, but I think that same level of thought and diligence needs to be applied to other aspects, really looking at what's relevant to your business because for some businesses, particularly service businesses, you can control, um, you know, emissions and that climate risk is easy, right? What's hard Mm -hmm. is modern slavery and supply chains. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think, you know, the challenge for business is really understanding what is really important for you and making that the focus, not the things that are consuming all of the bandwidth um, in seminars like
3: this or, or in the courts. Thank you. This is a really important point, Mel, because you say climate change is perhaps the most obvious. Um, there is modern slavery. There's also data protection and human rights, the right to privacy. And all of these issues are um, on an equal footing in terms of the ESG umbrella. Um, I think there is sort of sometimes a short hunt to equate ESG with climate change. It really isn't. It is much broader. and We mustn't lose this out of sight, not least because the European directive captures all of these elements. Mm. And um, so therefore uh, just concentrating on climate would um, probably be a compliance risk at this point.
0: Yep. no, definitely. Who knows? Any um, final comments from you?
3: No,
2: just in terms of, you know, again, just taking into account South Africa's background, you know, there has been a lot of focus on the S part of the ESG as well, just in redressing our previous um, history, where you do have the likes of employment equity, where you've got to have X number of minority employees, women, etc. So there has been a large focus on the S. And I guess we're only now more recently packaging it as part of the E, the S and the G in South Africa.
0: Yeah, no, that's all very interesting. And I think um, it's impossible to sum it up. I think Silke did a fantastic job (laughs) in addition to Mel's comments there. And thanks, you know, for giving another example of how this is just an evolving space. But I think um, to sum it up for businesses, I think um, there was a comment made before that is perfect in terms of how to go forward. is the devil's in the detail and you need to be careful of... Um, what you say and identifying um, Mel, like you said, what matters to your business and how how you operate and how ESG may be involved um, in various ways um, in your business. So. Um, Thank you all so much for giving up your time for this. I think it's been a fantastic discussion and we've learned a lot from um, different jurisdictions, but then also realizing how connected we are and how um, at some point we'll probably all be on the same page in future, but um, thank you all so much.